Hello and welcome to Ninth Seed. I'm your host, Moose Huerta. Thank you for tuning in to our third episode. In this episode, we'll be talking about some basketball mixed with pop culture moments as they relate to the city of Barcelona, located in the Catalonian region of Spain. We'll be discussing basketball in the 1992 Summer Olympics, the rise of skateboarding in Barcelona during the late 90s and early aughts, and then the 11th pick in the 2005 NBA draft, Galician big man Fran Vazquez. And finally, we will recap a trip to Barcelona to watch the 2016 Spanish ACB and Desa League Clásico. That's a basketball game of Real Madrid Baloncesto versus FC Barcelona Lasa. The first time that the city of Barcelona was truly on my radar was around 1990-1991. That's when the reality started to sink in that NBA players were going to be allowed to participate in the 1992 Summer Olympics hosted in Barcelona. See, there was ongoing debate regarding eligibility for basketball in the Olympics. What was the difference between playing professionally in Europe versus playing professionally in the NBA? Here's what the former NBA commissioner, David Stern, and the infamous Charles Barkley had to say about it. If you played in Europe for money, you were an amateur, but if you played in the NBA for money, you were a professional. And so our players weren't eligible. Those other countries were using pros. Playing against 18, 19-year-old kids, that is really unfair. So there is some misinformation in David Stern's statement. Eligibility was not a matter of being an amateur professional. It was a matter of being a member of the NBA or not. The statement I'm about to read is directly from the USA Basketball website and is linked on our site under episode three. Quote, at the time, the NBA was not even part of the organization that came to be known as USA Basketball, the governing body for basketball in the U.S., end quote. The reason why NBA players were not allowed in the Olympics was not because of their talent level, but because the NBA was not a member of the national governing body of USA Basketball, and thus the global governing body of FIBA. So for example, if there was an American playing professionally in Europe, they were eligible for the Olympics. But if there was a European playing in the NBA, they should in theory be ineligible for the Olympics. See, in soccer, there is the FIFA World Cup, more commonly known as the World Cup, and then there is the Olympics. If you were to ask any diehard soccer fan if they could have their choice between their country winning a World Cup or an Olympics, 10 for 10, they would choose a World Cup title over an Olympic gold. Now, for basketball, there is the FIBA World Cup and the Olympics. FIBA stands for Fédération Internationale du Basketball. Uh, it's a French acronym because the headquarters are located in Switzerland. I want to say this is just a small step to what our goal really is to get to Barcelona, win the gold medal, and bring it back where it's supposed to be. Thank you. That was Larry Bird, member of the 1992 Dream Team, right after Team USA won the FIBA Americas Tournament, which officially qualified them for the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona. You'll notice how Larry Bird mentions the quest to bring back the gold to the USA where it's supposed to be. That's because at the time, neither the Olympic gold nor the FIBA gold were in the USA. In the 1988 Olympics, the podium was Soviet Union gold, Yugoslavia silver, and USA bronze. And in the 1990 FIBA World Cup, Yugoslavia gold, Soviet Union silver, USA bronze. 
See, a World Cup win in basketball meant more to Europeans than it did to Americans. When it comes to basketball, the American fan base places greater value in Olympic gold over FIBA gold. In 1989, FIBA Secretary General Boris Stankovic advocated for and passed a rule change allowing NBA players to play in international competition. Stankovic was Yugoslavian, and I think he saw something that others didn't, which was by 1990, Yugoslavia would have players in the NBA, and he was right. In 1990, Drazen Petrovic was playing for the Portland Trailblazers, and Vladi Divac was playing for the Los Angeles Lakers, and the team had two future NBA players— three-time NBA champion Tony Kukoc of the Chicago Bulls and Dino Rada of the Boston Celtics. But in 1990, uh, geopolitically, they were all Yugoslavian. But by 1991, the Yugoslavian Civil War had begun. And by 92, Drazen, Dino, and Tony were Croatian nationals and Vladi was Yugoslavian, but soon to be a Serbian national. Here's an excerpt from an amazing ESPN 30 for 30 documentary titled Once Brothers. It's about the FIBA gold medal Yugoslavian team and what once was a brotherly friendship between Vladi Divac and the late great Mozart of the Hardwood, also known as Drazen Petrovic. The war still raged when the 1992 Olympics began in Barcelona, Spain. Yugoslavia was the reigning world champion, but now our team was in pieces. Croatia was an independent country and allowed to participate. But Yugoslavia was placed on international sanctions. We were banned from competition. Dražen led his new nation past the Soviet Unified Team in the semifinals. Their reward was to play USA Dream Team for the gold medal. I watched the game, but it wasn't easy. Petrovic, and he gets another three. So for them, he has scored eight consecutive points. He makes a steal on Jordan's pass. Jordan's pass was there. Petrovic again, another three. Drajan played a great game, but the dream team was too strong. The silver medal was a great accomplishment for Croatia. But I always wonder what would have happened if my former teammates and I had played together. So what Vladi is asking is what if the FIBA gold medal Yugoslavian team had been able to play against Team USA? Don't get me wrong, they would have lost, but I think it would have been a lot closer than people think. It should be noted that the former Yugoslavia disbanded into six countries of Slovenia, Croatia, Serbia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Montenegro, and Macedonia. If there was a current Yugoslavian team, it would be stacked. Too many amazing players to mention, but my starting five would be... At point guard, I'd have Slovenian Goran Dragic of the Miami Heat, and at shooting guard, I'd have fellow Slovenian Luka Doncic of the Dallas Mavericks, at small forward, Croatian Bojan Bogdanovic of the Indiana Pacers or Croatian Mario Hazonia of the New York Knicks. At power forward, there's Croatian Dario Saric of the Minnesota Timberwolves or Montenegrin Nikola Mirotic of the New Orleans Pelicans. And its center is where it's stacked. You have two current all-stars. You have Nikola Jokic of the Denver Nuggets and Vuc, Montenegrin Nikola Vucevic of the Orlando Magic. That is a really good team that could definitely give Team USA a run for its money. And if you disagree, you'll have to remember the 2004 Olympic Argentinian team that took the gold and handed the likes of Allen Iverson, LeBron James, and Tim Duncan a bronze medal. But taking it back to the early 90s, Croatian Drazen Petrovic is one of the top three what-ifs in NBA history. What if he hadn't died in a car accident in 1993? 
what would his NBA legacy be. We do know that he was known for his killer instinct, and in fact, here's what his former teammate, former NBA All-Star, and New York City's finest, Kenny Anderson, had to say about him. He had like 40 on Jordan, and he was going at Jordan like, yo, it ain't nothing. Like, give me the ball, I'm hot. I'm taking him. Right away, Petro sending a little bit of a message. Let's go after Jordan. Here's Petro. A couple of steps beyond Murray. Stroke City. That's what I knew. I said, yo, he's a ride. When you see archival footage of Draws and Petrovich, he's wearing short shorts and has a clean haircut, which makes the footage read more mid to late 80s. But most of the footage is from the 92-93 season, and it was a much more modern time in the NBA than people remember. Uh, During 1993, Jordan won his third title, and he was wearing Jordan 8s. So how did Drazen get so good at basketball? Legend is that post-World War II, athletic courts were installed all throughout Yugoslavia as a means to keep people productive, which also meant quiet and in order. Access to courts, coupled with Eastern Europeans being very tall, allowed them to naturally excel at basketball. In fact, Belgrade, Serbia calls itself the Cradle of Basketball. That's a nickname that I would imagine exists predominantly, if not exclusively, in Europe. It also comes along with a saying, America invented basketball, but we perfected it. The Cradle is basically a metaphor. USA gave birth to basketball, but the Cradle, Belgrade, raised it to perfection. The premise is that European basketball is more fundamentally sound and team-oriented. And conversely, it's thought that the American system places more importance on individual success than it does team success. But I will say this. Where Europe has countries, the U.S. has states. If you were to combine basketball powerhouses, let's say Serbia, Spain, France, Croatia, and Turkey, it would be smaller landmass and population-wise compared to the U.S., and that would be a world of hurt for Team USA. This is just a long-winded way of saying the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, Spain was not a global awakening of basketball, but instead it was a platform. It was the first time other countries could measure themselves up against the very best, the dream team. But like Draws and Petrovic, the world didn't want to be like Mike. They wanted to be better than Mike. Honestly, though, when you watch the All-Star game on TV, didn't you kind of say, man, I should be in there? (laughs) Yeah, it was a car, but do you know? Life goes on, and you know, I'll be working on my game every year and try to get better. This summer, I was working whole summer with Croatian national team, running the point guard and try to get my game going. And uh, definitely, whole summer, I was working hard, pays off right now. Fast forward to 1999, and I'm headed to Spain for my first time. But it was to San Sebastian, Spain, to surf and not to skate. However, I was aware that directly across the country, on the Mediterranean coast, that Barcelona was the hot spot for international skateboarding. And in 2000, S Skate Shoes released the much-anticipated video Menic Mati, directed by French Fred. All throughout the video were glimpses of skate spots in Barcelona. And the opening part was awarded to the 19-year-old Finnish skateboard prodigy named Arto Sari. And a year later, in 2001, Arto was named Thrasher Sodi, Skater of the Year. We are lucky enough to have Ardo come on to the podcast to discuss the early days of skateboarding in Barcelona. So without further ado, please allow me to introduce you to our guest, Mr. Arto Sari. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on, man. Really appreciate it. But um, when did you start to hear about the growing scene in Barcelona? 
Uh, probably started hearing about Barcelona in the mid '90s. Um, There's a couple of Finnish homies that took a trip over there, and maybe like '96. Um, it's there, you know, footage started popping up in some videos. This is like back in the VHS days, still. You know, it'd take a little while before the information got around. So I know you've spent a ton of time in Barcelona, but can you remember your first trip and what it was for? The first trip there was in '90. 90- 1999 with Kerry Getz. He's a professional skateboarder, and Ken Phillips is a photographer, and Fred Mortania, who was uh, at the time we we're filming for the Ethnic Mahdi, which is a SKG brand video. So we were shooting for the movie over there for a couple of weeks. That was my first introduction, and after that, we we stuck a lot of clips on that trip, and I just got so psyched on it that I just kept going back and eventually ended up having an apartment there and and, uh i would just i would spend a lot of time in early 2000s over there so why do you think that uh skateboarding got popular in barcelona in the late 90s early aughts uh, when it was already pop really popular in the states in the early mid 90s it's right on that time that you know all the brands started getting apartments there and sending people on trips and it started coming out in every single video at that time so it's hard to say like who was first i mean i'm sure clarabelle or forum one or you know those guys were there probably first really blowing it up and then um you know it seeped into other videos but it just kind of became out of nowhere where it's just blew up all of a sudden and everyone was there you know and it's i mean i believe it's all to do with the olympics i mean that's why they pumped a lot of money into it cleaned up the city and and uh, all these spots got built throughout that time it's funny i never i honestly never drew that parallel um but the segment before you coming on was about the 92 olympics so it's interesting that they're connected um but what do you think makes barcelona such a skate-friendly city because of all the spots got built, like the whole city got renovated for the Olympics. So that's when a lot of the spots popped up. A lot of marble got laid down, a lot of granite, a lot of, you know, the whole revamp. And and also, it's perfect for skating because people are generally pretty laid back and don't really care about skateboarders. They're just like, yeah, it's just another thing, you know, kids playing, whatever. They're, if they're on the streets. It wasn't like, you know, in LA or SF, you get tickets and all that stuff. Like, it was pretty. The attitude towards skateboarders in Barcelona was pretty relaxed. So, you could skate a lot of stuff, which was which was great for us, you know? Yeah. And it's also an easy city to get around because it has such an easy metro system. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, the, the way it's laid out, the public transport is awesome. You know, you can just skate around all day and, and hop on trains and metros or metros and just get around to all the suburbs so it's a pretty um it's a pretty perfect setup as far as skating goes but i mean barcelona by far takes the cake of like skate tourism for sure people going over there and and skating well thanks so much uh for your insight arto i know it took a little work for us to make this happen so i really appreciate your time and coming on Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's awesome. Brings back a lot of memories. If you go to 9th we've posted Ardo's full Menekmati part, as well as some other footage from his early days in Helsinki. Next up, we have the cautionary tale of Fran Vazquez, the 6'11 big man from the Galician region of Spain. 
The Orlando Magic drafted Vasquez 11th overall with their 2005 first-round draft pick. He was the EuroLeague's top shot blocker, and Orlando's plan was to pair Vasquez at power forward next to prodigy center Dwight Howard that they had drafted a year earlier with the number one pick in 2004. Even though Vasquez had verbally committed to Orlando, when he got back to Spain, he was greeted with a four-year, $8 million contract from Girona Basketball Club. At the time, that was the largest contract in Spanish league history, which is roughly what he would have been paid to play in the NBA, but without the comforts of home. It's also been well documented that his girlfriend at the time pressured him to stay in Spain. Four years later, in the spring of 2009, the Eastern Conference third seed Orlando Magic surprised the league by making it all the way to the NBA Finals. To get to the Finals, they had to defeat the defending NBA champion Boston Celtics and then the MVP LeBron James-led Cleveland Cavaliers. But that's where that feel-good story ended. Petrus posting Bryant right in the basket, muscles up, Kobe blocks the shot. They're just strangling him right now. Everything is frustration. Odom to Gasol, back to Odom, up and under and banks it in. What a run for the Lakers, and this crowd is stunned, as are the Magic. Play your game, okay? We gotta get out of the frustration. Bryant, right baseline in the corner. Bryant faces on Reddick, rises, and hits. Bryant, the Lakers right now can smell blood. They are in control. And that's it. The championship trophy returns to its West Coast home. The 2009 NBA champions, the Los Angeles Lakers. So after the NBA Finals are done, everybody looks forward to the NBA draft. And 11 days later, after L.A. had won the title, uh, there was the 2009 NBA draft. The Minnesota Timberwolves drafted Spaniard Ricky Rubio with the fifth overall pick. Back in 2001, your countryman, Paul Gasol, was drafted third overall. What did it do to you and for you? Oh, it was unbelievable. I was like 11 years old, and I didn't know what exactly was the draft, man. And now I know what is the draft. For the fans that haven't seen you play, which NBA player do you think you play like? I'm Ricky Rubio. I'm not like anybody else, but I feel like... Steve Nash, but it's too high for me, you know. Due to his contract restrictions slash obligations, Rubio had to stay in Spain for a couple more years. Post-NBA draft, Rubio played for FC Barcelona, where he joined up with Fran Vasquez. Together, they won a EuroLeague title in 2010 and a Spanish ACB title in 2011. Two seasons after Rubio was drafted, he joined the Minnesota Timberwolves. But the reason why Fran Vasquez is considered a cautionary tale is because teams now fear that they could waste a valuable first-round draft pick on a young European pro who might decide to never join the NBA. Hey, Fran, if you're out there watching, we've been waiting for three long years for you to come play with us. When are you, you going to come? You don't have to worry about nothing. I'll make sure you get a nice house, nice car. You're going to eat good every night because some you're going open, to eat with me. Some open shots. Some open shots, whatever you want. Just come on back. Come on back. We're waiting. That was Dwight Howard trying to convince Fran to join the Orlando Magic. Despite the Magic's regular season success in 2010 and 2011, they never made it back to the NBA Finals. The Magic's strongest trade asset was backup Polish center Marcin Gortat. The idea is that they could trade Gortat for a young scorer and then bring Vasquez over from Spain. 
where he would immediately be considered one of the league's best backup big men. All that being said, Vasquez has yet to make it over to the NBA. He's currently 35 years old, playing out his twilight years in Spain. The point of the story is that Fran Vasquez and Ricky Rubio are the two players that opened my eyes to Barca basketball and subsequently European basketball. And for reference, Barca has the most alumni currently playing in the NBA, and then clubs Real Madrid and Turkish powerhouse Fenerbahce are tied for second. intended for 9th Seed to be a magazine, and the trip to see the 2016 Liga Endesa Clásico, also known as the Spanish League matchup between Real Madrid and FC Barcelona, is going to be the first article. I was fairly certain that I wouldn't be able to get press credentials because I didn't have a publication yet, so just in case, I bought two courtside tickets, one for myself and one for photographer Colin Sussingham. However, Courtside tickets were $200, which for comparison in the NBA will get you a lower upper bowl seat on a bad team or a total nosebleed seat on a good team. Not only were the tickets crazy affordable, but they also served you tapas in Australia beer at halftime. But what was immediately noticeable was that there wasn't any music in the arena. Instead, there was the Draca section, which is a supporter section where all they do is sing Barca chants the whole game. Palau Blaugrana is the indoor arena that is right next to the massive Camp Nou soccer stadium. And for reference, Barca's basketball arena has approximately 7,500 seats, whereas the average stadium size in the NBA is about 19,000 seats. I've never been to an NCAA March Madness game, but this felt like the professional Spanish version of one. Barca led the whole game. Uh, they had a lethal big man rotation uh, between Croatian Ante Tomic and American Joey Dorsey. Tomic was probably the best player of the game, but Real Madrid's Anthony Randolph had his hands full guarding them and fouled out. Uh, and then late in the fourth quarter, with the game well in hand, uh, American point guard Tyrese Rice went up against forward Andre Nocioni. He crossed him up with a playground-like crossover. It wasn't anything super obnoxious. But Nocioni took offense to it and got in Rice's face and got ejected, which really got the crowd going. Which was fun in itself, but um, there were some hand gestures that I had never seen before, one of which could best be described as aggressively shoveling food in your mouth, <laughs> which I deduce, or I guess would mean uh, eat shit. But um, I think the Barca fans just had fun taunting an Argentinian, uh, much like Real Madrid fans would taunt Lionel Messi. However, my fondest memory of the game was at halftime while enjoying my tabas and beer, I looked at the printed out stat sheet that they gave us. 
and the babyface number seven for Al Madrid was getting a ton of playing time, and he was only 17. And in the second half, I knowingly enjoyed watching Luka Doncic play for my first time. I'm not an NBA scout, but for a fan, it's not rocket science. Comb through the top tier of European teams and pick out the players under 19 that are getting significant playing time. And odds are you'll start seeing them on NBA draft boards sooner than later. The game was an amazing experience that I would highly recommend. Uh, we have some of Colin Sussingham's photos from the game posted on the site. They will live in a print form and a true self-published zine format at some point. Beyond basketball and skateboarding, Barcelona is an amazing city to visit, and I would highly recommend it. I've been six times now. Two of those trips were with my wife, where all we did is sightsee and eat. I'd be doing Barcelona a great disservice if I didn't mention how mind-blowing the food is there. We've linked a bunch of restaurants on the site in case you want to plan a trip yourself. If I had my choice of a last meal, the old-school tapas bar, Kime Kime, would be in my top three. It's rumored to have been one of Anthony Bourdain's personal favorites, and I can't think of a better uh, culinary stamp of approval. Thanks for listening to our third episode. Every audio track we referenced in this episode is posted on ninthc.com under episode three, El Dia de Partit, which is Catalonian for the day of the match. We will be returning for episode four, where we'll be discussing the enigmatic, feuding Turkish arch nemesis Hido Turkoglu and Enes Kanter. You can listen to Ninth Seed on Apple Podcasts and Anchor.fm. Our intro and outro music is Copa Nova by Los Rios. <laughs> <laughs>